Well, hello everyone and uh, welcome back to the Favourites podcast. And uh, we're continuing our series looking at how do you know? Uh, that whole question about how we know uh, about God, how we distinguish truth from lies about God, uh, the creation, new creation and us humanity. And we've seen that the way that we know about God is through revelation, uh, through what God discloses about himself to us. Now we've seen that there are two ways in which God discloses, God reveals who he is and the truth about the world around us and uh, the world to come uh, and the truth about us. Uh, we've seen that revelation comes through general revelation uh, that everything that God does is an act of revelation it shows us something of who he is and his character his nature uh, we've seen uh, that God most specifically and most clearly reveals his truth to us for something called special revelation that's revelation that focuses specifically on God's unfolding plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. Where do we find that special revelation? Oh, well, we find it in the Bible, in Scripture. At 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 uh, famously says that all Scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired. All scriptures is, is inspired by God uh, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training, for righteousness. And verse 17, so that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. We're going to be thinking about how the Bible reveals God's truth to us, how the Bible is the place where we find special revelation. And we're going to use those two verses, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, uh, to help us think through that. What does it mean to say that all scripture is God-breathed or is inspired by God? Or what do we mean when we say that it is useful, that it is profitable? for teaching. What does it mean when it says uh, that scripture is useful because through it the man of God or any person that belongs to Jesus Christ uh, may be equipped for every good work, may be made complete. But we need to see those verses in context first of all, don't we? Uh, and the bigger context is that Paul writes these two letters to Timothy. Timothy uh, was uh, a companion, a helper with Paul on uh, some of his missionary journeys uh, and was often sent by Paul as an ambassador, by, as a representative to, back to some of the planted churches. Eventually he is left in Ephesus and there's a number of these people, uh, Titus is another one, that Paul uh, leaves in places to ensure that the the foundational work of getting these churches rooted and established and thriving and healthy happens. Timothy in, uh, in, Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete. 
and they're given instructions uh, about how to appoint leaders in the church, elders and, and deacons, about how to raise up uh, future evangelists and gospel workers and ensure that the message is passed on and that the work is passed on. And one of the primary things that Paul wants to say to Timothy is that if you're going to get these churches established and rooted and grounded and fruitful and healthy and thriving, then you need scripture, you need God's word. Then here's the, uh, the more immediate context to Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 10 through to verse 17, the immediate verses around. Uh, Paul has described some of those that have wandered away from the Lord. Uh, Janus and Jambres resisted Moses in uh, verse 8, we're reminded about that, and there are going to be people like that who oppose the gospel in Timothy's day. But Paul says, but you, verse 10, have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So I want you to notice that context that describes Paul's work of spreading the gospel that work that Timothy, Timothy has participated in, uh, and how Paul says whenever he sought to proclaim the good news about Jesus, he's faced opposition, he's faced persecution, and Timothy's experienced that too. And Paul is saying, you're going to keep experiencing persecution. In fact, those that are part of the churches that we've planted, the ones that you're trying to build up, they will experience persecution, they will experience opposition. Why? Well, because anybody who seeks to live for Jesus, seeks to live a, a godly life, will face opposition, will face persecution. A couple of reasons for that. At first, uh, because simply you will stand out in the world as different as uh, to the world around, as odd, as peculiar, as offensive. Because you will get under people's skin, because by living a, a godly life, even if you don't um, explicitly condemn their sin, their wrong deeds, your refusal to participate in them will be seen as condemnation. They'll see you as being superior in attitude.
uh, because um, we see this in in, in the cities uh, that Paul goes to preach the gospel because uh, leaving behind sin means leaving behind idolatry uh, and, and that has financial implications for the world around. The world around makes money out of sin. Uh, so Christians who are not addicted to the things of this world because of, uh, of, of that they undermine uh, the economy and the community around them. So godliness is offensive and dangerous to the world around us. And so people will want to oppose you. Bring you down. Uh, but also because Satan's strategy will be to try and oppose and to bring down those who live for Jesus and speak for Jesus. So godly people will face persecution because the devil will use every means at his disposal to try and stop you. And sometimes that opposition will come, that persecution will come even from those that are within the church. If you are seen to be uh, holding tight to the truths of scripture, to the gospel, and speaking clearly to the world around, then others who claim to be Christians will be uncomfortable with that because that will disrupt their life too. And sometimes they will become the means by which persecution comes. So everybody who wants to live a godly life, wants to live uh, in a way that is godlike, that is pleasing to the Lord, that is close to Jesus, is going to face opposition, is going to face persecution. It doesn't mean that you will always at every time be going through the mill. It doesn't mean that every bit of suffering or difficult circumstances that you experience uh, will be persecution and opposition. Sometimes it will just be about the circumstances of life and sometimes it will be your own uh, foolish decisions that will get you into scrapes. But God's people will face persecution, will face opposition. And it's for believers in Jesus Christ seeking to live godly lives, seeking to be distinctive, to be salt and light, to be holy. It's for believers who are experiencing all of the challenges that go with that, of living in a messy fallen world, of facing opposition, of even suffering and being persecuted. It's for them that Paul says all scripture is inspired by God, is God breathed. So let's observe a few things about scripture, about God's word, the Bible, as we find them in this passage, in these verses here. First of all, all scripture, but we're gonna break this down Martin Lloyd-Jones style today all scripture the whole of god's word and of course at the point that paul writes to timothy it won't have been completed yet timothy will have had the old testament scriptures the law and the prophets and the psalms and proverbs the wisdom literature and all of that is god breathed says paul and you're familiar with it you know it you've been taught it since 
youth. And, 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 and that scripture we know from Luke 24 points us to the coming of Jesus. But at the time Paul is writing to Timothy, significant parts of the New Testament will have been available to him. Uh, even this letter as it arrives. He would have had some of Paul's other letters that have been written earlier, like Romans and Galatians. I believe that he will have had all four of the Gospels, or at least the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. I, I believe that there is good reason to believe that the Gospels uh, were written down and shared and widely circulated early. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, uh, one reason is because of how those Gospels uh, handle uh, things like prophecies about the destruction of the Temple. That is clearly a, a future event that hasn't happened at the time the Gospels are written. Uh, so we're definitely looking at a pre-AD 70 for the date for the Gospels. Secondly, I understand that there is some evidence, although it's disputed and debated, to suggest that we do have very early manuscripts. And thirdly, because it's what you would expect the disciples to be doing, you'd expect them to be telling the stories of Jesus and getting them written down to be shared. Uh, partly because that's just what people would do in that situation. If you have been in a situation where uh, something as incredible as the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has happened, you would want to get it written down and circulated. But also because this is, it's, it's in the DNA of Jewish people to retell the stories and to get them written down and to get them shared. Now that's what's happened with the Old Testament scriptures as well. So highly likely to have had quite a bit of the New Testament at this stage, possibly just some of the, the later epistles, um, including the general epistles, um, the Hebrews and one or two Peter, James and Jude, that kind of thing. Possibly Revelation still to come, maybe as well John's Gospel but a lot there. And, and I think as Paul writes and he talks about scripture, we're able to recognise that he can include within that label, within that definition, uh, scripture that isn't yet available, but is to come. Uh, scripture will be completed. Uh, so all scripture, that means the whole of the Bible. Uh, it, it also means only the books that we have in the Bible now, uh, because there comes a point when uh, the canon of Scripture, the the, 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 the book is completed, it's, it's closed. And the book of Revelation makes it clear that you are not to add to and do not to subtract from Scripture. All Scripture, the whole of the Bible and nothing added onto it, there are some things to tease out in your own time and find out about how we are confident that all of the books that we have in the Bible should be in the Bible. 
and that there aren't any that we've missed. All scripture is inspired by God, is, is God breathed, literally that image of God breathing out his word, the spirit breathing out truth. That, that idea of breath takes us right back to Genesis and the breath of God that gives life, um, but also links us into the, the Holy Spirit as the one through whom Scripture is inspired, and it's the Holy Spirit that will enable the original authors of the Bible to hear God and to write down accurately what God has to say. It's God breathed. Uh, notice that inspiration here is different to other ideas like the Book of Mormon and uh, even the Quran, that this is not something that is um, dictated by God, but inspired, breathed by God. Uh, so that the, the human authors are hearing God, are speaking God's word accurately and, and truthfully. We'll come onto that in a moment. But God is using them, their personality, their experience, their character, uh, so that when we read a book of the Bible, we get the personality, the character, the experience of the author in it. It is a fully divine book, but it's fully human. We shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus Christ is often described as the word of God. This is the style of John's gospel. And so we talk about scripture as the written word, but we talk about Jesus as the living word. And he is fully divine, fully God and fully human. So scripture is a divine book and it's a human book. Uh, and just as uh, Jesus's humanity, because Jesus is also completely divine, doesn't lead Jesus into sin, so the human elements of the book are still protected from going into error, going into falsehood. The Bible is truthful, and we're still talking about its inspiration here. We sometimes use two words to describe that. Uh, that scripture is infallible and it's inerrant. Both of those words have the idea of reliability and the absence of error. We tend to use the, the second word, inerrancy, to emphasise that right down to the individual uh, words it's all from God and there are no mistakes there, nothing that shouldn't be there and nothing missing that should be there and no corruption of what God says. Now, it's important at this point to be clear and that there's a qualification on that. But when we talk about the Bible being infallible and inerrant, without error, truthful in all that it says and authoritative, we are speaking specifically of Scripture as it was originally given, uh, the very original, the first writing down of the words, the original autographs. 
That means that it is possible for humans to make mistakes when copying. And it's possible uh, when we translate, because we're reading in English now, not the original Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic that you find in the, uh, in, uh, the first scriptures. Uh, but the original writing down is what is described as truthful and without error, infallible and inerrant. That might cause us some challenges and give us some questions. Now, one question we might ask is, well, is there any point in saying that it's infallible and inerrant if it only applies to the original manuscripts as we as, 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 as we first had them? Because actually we don't have access to them now. They've been long since lost. And I think intentionally God didn't want us to be worshipping the the original scriptures as, as kind of, um, you know, as, as, as things to put in shrines, things um, like relics. Uh, we've seen how people have treated the bones of, of supposed saints. Imagine what they would do if they found uh, the very first parchments on which Mark wrote his, his gospel. Uh, but does that mean, therefore, that we have got something that is in error? Uh, I want to say um, that there are two reasons why it matters and why it's helpful. Uh, here's the first one. Although it requires some work on our part, and although there'll be challenges with it, if the original was true and without error, without mistakes, then it makes it possible for us to get to a place with a high degree of confidence that we have the accurate word of God. Because there are processes that we can go through to make sure that the manuscripts that we are using now are correct and that the translations that we've got now are accurate. And it might be helpful to look at a few different manuscripts and it might be helpful to have a few different Bible translations open in, in front of you. But we can still get to that confidence. The second reason is this. If God is sovereign and truthful, is truth and is love, so he is able to tell the truth, wants to tell the truth, and in fact, if God is the one who, because his nature is truth, cannot tell a lie, cannot make a mistake, cannot change, then because it is his word, then we would expect that to be truthful and unchanging and without error. So when we make a statement about the Bible, because it's God's word, we're making a statement about God. If we say that the Bible makes mistakes that can't be trusted, we're saying that God makes mistakes and can't be trusted. Well, that's not the case. So scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed. And it is useful or profitable 
just want to highlight something else there related to the nature of scripture that arises out of who God is and has implications here for the usefulness of the Bible. Now, because God could give something to us that is true without error, but is unintelligible to us. But he doesn't. Uh, we talked in an earlier session about how God stoops. Uh, John Calvin uses the, the word lisps like a, a nurse talking to a child. So God accommodates to our finite minds so that we can understand. So scripture is helpful because it is clear, it has clarity. Um, theologians use the word perspicuity to describe the clarity of scripture. I, I find it amusing, ironic that uh, the word often used to describe the clarity of scripture isn't exactly uh, a clear one, not one that is readily used or understood in the English language. But, but there you go. We believe in the clarity of scripture. That when I pick up the Bible and read it, I can understand it, not just uh, the words and the sentences, but I can understand what they mean and I can see clearly how they apply. It is relevant to life. It means that the person without any literacy, the young child, the uneducated person, even somebody with a severe um, mental disability is able, as they hear scripture read, to understand what God is saying to them. Because it's clear. Now, again, it's important to have clarity, to have the necessary qualifications there about what we are and what we are not saying. Uh, so when I say that scripture is clear, I'm not saying that I always will understand every part of it. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, first, because I'm finite and also because of the effect of the fall on me. I may struggle to understand some things and even when I struggle to uh, even when I'm able to understand I may struggle to accept so that something may seem difficult to me but not because it's unclear but because I don't want to hear what it is clearly saying and so I muddy the waters a bit I blur the lines a bit the other thing we want to say is that it is clear uh, and certainly we can read through and the essential truths and the main storyline is is boldly there so there's no misunderstanding of what the bible is saying about the gospel uh, but that clarity doesn't mean that every single part of it is as simple and as obvious as the other bits some bits are harder to read some bits are more complex, some will take more wrestling, and some of them, uh, not because there's a problem with the Bible, but because there's a problem with us, because we are finite and limited, some parts we may not get close to fully grasping in our lives here. But the essential message is clear. 
Uh, and whilst the bits that I might need a bit of help with, uh, some books to read, uh, the preacher expounding. And although there are bits that I will struggle with, I can pick up my Bible and I can read it and I can hear what God is saying to his people, to the church, including me today. Uh, that has implications as well, doesn't it? It means that if the Bible is clear, then when we stand up to preach, we shouldn't announce that we're about to explain the Bible as though the Bible is this sort of hidden secret that needs my help before you can understand it. My job as a preacher is, is not to help you understand something difficult, but to make sure that you are hearing and applying something clear and to bring that nowness of this eternal word to our situation today. That's your job if you're a preacher as well. Scripture is clear. And again, that is telling us something about God's nature and his love, his desire to reveal, to disclose, to show who he is, to talk to us, to um, have a relationship with us, to commune with us. And so it is useful. Uh, notice the things that it's useful for. It's profitable or useful for teaching uh, so that we can lead Bible studies, we can do one-to-one -one discussions, we can preach, we can teach, we can use it to give not just knowledge but wisdom. Uh, but also for rebuking and correction. Uh, there is a positive message of the gospel but also scripture will challenge us. correct us and where we need to be told that we are in the wrong scripture will do that and sometimes it will be painful it will be hard to hear it uh, this is why i keep constantly coming back to mike ovi's old proverb that if god is real if god is true and if scripture is real and true then we must let god disagree with us through his word It's useful for training, for training in righteousness, because if we want to know how to be godly in a world where we're going to face opposition, we need the Bible. The Bible is necessary. We need it to do those things. And in fact, without scripture, we can't be taught, we can't be rebuked, we cannot be corrected, we cannot be trained for righteousness. And so a healthy church will have God's word, the reading and the expounding, the preaching of scripture right at the heart of everything that it does. So that the man of God, the person of God, the sons and daughters of God, you and me as believers may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that idea of completion is of perfection, of being brought to the place of maturity in Christ. And so we say that scripture is not only necessary, but it is sufficient. It will fully do the job. It's what we need to hear God speak to us in our lives today. No, we don't need another new revelation. We don't need a new um, 
a new Bible, a new book. That's why we don't need things like the Book of Mormon. We don't need the additions of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it also helps us to think about the gifts of the Spirit. So I believe in um, contemporary gifts of prophecy and words of knowledge and dreams and visions. But I want to be very clear that those things are not adding special revelation. They're not giving us something that we don't have and so we need. Uh, that will hopefully get you thinking and asking then what do the gifts do and we'll talk about that in more detail later. I want to suggest two things. First of all, uh, that quite often when we see the gifts of the Spirit in those kinds of ways, we are seeing examples of general revelation that the Holy Spirit is at work uh, particularly with those who are naturally intuitive, naturally seeing and using our dreams and the stirrings of our hearts to disclose, to reveal. But just as he does with general revelation, just as he does with science and history. I think the other thing that sometimes happens with prophecy is that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, in our lives, uh, to particularly um, impress or burden a scripture or several scriptures onto us, to burn it into our hearts so that we get a sense of the nowness that this particular verse from the Bible, this particular chapter, this particular theme is, is especially appropriate and relevant now. Uh, what that means is uh, that whilst not all preaching will be prophecy, that, that there will be times when a preacher is doing that, they are prophesying, it is prophetic because there's a strong sense of the nowness of God's word to our situation. We'll be talking about all of those things uh, later. Uh, but what I want to really get across today is that if God speaks, then this is a word, the word from the triune God, from Father Son and Holy Spirit. And so we talk about the Holy Spirit inspiring scripture. That means that it was the Holy Spirit indwelling and working in the lives of the people who wrote down scripture that enabled them to pass on God's word accurately and completely. But we also say that the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture, or our reading of scripture. Uh, so that when we come to God's word, whether when we're reading it individually on our own or hearing it and looking at it together in Bible studies and listening to preaching, uh, we should be praying that the Holy Spirit will help us to see. He will shine his light on the page so that we're fully able to understand that the Holy Spirit will help us not just to be hearers of God's word, but doers also. It's exciting, isn't it, to think that God speaks to us and that here in our hands we have something so incredible and so powerful. There's something that so many people do not have. It should cause us to love God's word, that we will want to hear it, to read it, to meditate on it ourselves as part of our church families. 
it should encourage us to honour and respect it so that we don't just have an intellectual curiosity but that this book makes a difference in our lives. I think it should also give us a passion and concern to see it passed on to uh, be proclaiming it, telling others about Jesus, giving the Bible, giving Gospels to, to people that don't have access to them, uh, getting it translated into other languages and into modern English as well, and, and uh, shared around the world, particularly to countries where it's hard to get hold of the Bible, countries that are close to the, the Gospel. So it should encourage a, a missionary zeal, a passion for mission amongst us as well that you are getting excited about the Bible, about God's special revelation to us. And next time we're going to talk a bit more about some of the practical implications from this. Join us then. Um, and we'll see you soon.